Some others will be gathering in shortly, and our prayer meeting folks will be in. But we're going to make a start to our hymn singing, and just keeping our seats for the opening part. The hymn 270, Down at the cross where my Savior died, Down where for cleansing from sin I cried, There to my heart was the blood applied, Glory to His name. to defend his cause and tame the honor of his word, the glory of his cross, at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light. to proclaim it, redeemed 
by the blood of the Lamb. And we're singing verses 1 and 3. taste of glory divine. Verses 1 and 3.
the feet of Jesus, oh, the happy, happy day that my soul found peace in believing and my sins were washed away. Again, verses 1 and 3. Before we come to the opening hymn, and this is family night, so we're singing these hymns together just to uh, get into song for tonight's meeting. We'll sing two verses, the first two of 383. There will never be a sweeter story, story of the Savior's love divine. hymn that we like to sing here at Hebron, and that is the hymn Victory in Jesus. I heard an old, old story how the Savior came from glory, 
how he gave his life in Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning of his precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus. And we'll stand this time as we sing.
Gleason will sing this final verse again. We'll do it in a style that Hebron is good at doing, and that is a cappella. And that just simply means without, without the music, I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea, about the angels singing and the old redemption story. And some sweet day I'll sing up there the song of victory. It's lovely to sing it here and to be able to rejoice in the redeeming blood of Christ and the victory that he's wrought for us, redemption story. But what must it be to sing it up there in glory when we can sing perfectly? I'm not a member of the choir. I'm not a member of the, the word of truth. I'm not a solo singer, but I'm going to sing well when I get to heaven. And so will all of you, no matter what way you sing here on earth, you will sing as sweetly as it is possible to sing on that great day. We'll get the note and then we'll sing the verse together. tells us of a great multitude in heaven that no man can number and we know that they're singing the scripture tells us so and one day our voices will blend with theirs and we will sing the song of victory we look forward to that day let's pray together seek the Lord our father in a real sense it's victory all the way for the child of God we thank thee for the victory that was bought for us at such a cost on that center tree at the place called Calvary. We thank thee that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came into the world to be the Savior of men. We thank thee that he came at that appointed moment, that moment when the incarnation took place and he that was God took upon himself human flesh and was born in our likeness. Grew up in this life, as the prophet tells us, like a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, having no form nor comeliness, and when we should see him, no desire that we should have him, no beauty that we should desire him, but he was wounded for our transgressions. And Lord, we're glad that Jesus Christ was wounded for us, bruised for us, took our place, 
paid the price of sin. That penalty that we deserved was taken upon the Lord Jesus Christ completely. And we can say all to Jesus, we owe our salvation. He paid the sacrifice. He made the payment in full. We rejoice that he stood in our stead. And justice, God will not twice demand, first at my bleeding surety side and, and then at mine. We're going to stand before the Lord one day. We know that we shall give an account. Those of us that are saved, we will render unto God that day an account of the life lived, the service rendered as stewards, as servants of Christ. We're aiming for the well done, good and faithful servant. We know that we ought to walk every day with God and it ought to be a good life. It ought to be a life that's faithful. It is required, thy word tells us, in the stewards of God, that they are faithful. And we do pray for ourselves. We pray earnestly that you will keep us from backsliding, keep us from turning into bypath meadows, from stepping out of the way. Keep us faithful to Christ, to his word, to the way that we ought to live. Help us to earnestly contend for the faith. Lord, you've blessed the free church over the years. You've given to us a, a gospel preaching, evangelistic, fundamental church that proclaims Christ, and we pray that you will preserve that. We know that we're living in a day of the falling away when Paul tells us that they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they will not want the truth, and they will not want to stand in the old ways, but they will depart from the faith. And we know that backsliding, as we thought this morning, is just a, a few steps away. It doesn't take much to to remove us from the place where we ought to be. And Lord, we know that that falling away is only a few steps also. But Lord, keep us in the old paths, loving Christ, loving his word and preaching the glorious gospel of saving grace to a perishing world. Bless the gospel here at home and on the mission field. We're glad that we have a heart for the Great Commission. We know that mission is the center of God's work. It is the proclamation of divine truth. And we are to begin in our Jerusalem and then extend right to the uttermost part of the earth. And Lord, you've given us the wonderful privilege of being involved in a church that believes in the Great Commission as Christ laid it out in his word. <clears throat> you've made us witnesses unto Christ. And Lord, bless the witness. Here in Balamone, we think very especially of the mission coming up now next week. And Lord, we don't take this lightly. And we plan a mission every year. We go out to some part of the town, seeking to invite others in from the neighborhood, bringing our families in under the sound of the word, and having this special time, concentrated time, of presenting Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. We know the world out there is lying in sin. We know that they're perishing forever. Your word tells us that the wages of sin is death. Lord, the soul that sinneth that shall die. We know that that death, according to the book of Revelation, is the second death in the lake of fire. And so we cannot help but feel for those around us who are strangers to your grace and have not the experience of the new birth and God's salvation, who are walking according to the course of this world. It was a place where every individual walked prior to conversion. Our testimony is no different than the testimony 
outlined by Paul in Ephesians 2. At that time, we walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. At that time, we were without God and without hope and without Christ in this world. But God, who is rich in mercy. Oh, we're glad about the but in that testimony. The intervention of God and grace. When in the mercy of the Lord, you, you opened up the door of redemption. You sent your son to die upon the cross of Calvary. Through the shedding of the blood, we have remission of sin. We thank you, Lord, that many in this meeting have that testimony of conversion. There was that time when we were without God, but now we are in Christ. And there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We're glad that, that what we deserved, hell forevermore, has been removed. And it's all because of Christ. Nothing that we did. No good thing in us that could have merited salvation. But Jesus died. Jesus rose again. He paid the price for us in full. And therefore the sinner who has repented and sought the Lord by faith is acquitted. And when we stand before the judge that day, we know that we will be fully absolved through Christ who did the work for us at the cross and took our judgment there as the Father's wrath against sin was poured upon him, his beloved son. Lord, help us to be grateful. Help us, Lord, never to forget Calvary, never to stray far from the cross, because the cross is all our hope. It's all our boast tonight. Help us to abide under the shadow of Calvary. We say with a hymn writer, Jesus, keep me near the cross. They're a precious fountain. And Lord, help us to proclaim this cross to others. Save our sons and our daughters. Save our brothers and our sisters. Lord, we pray for wives and husbands that are out of Christ. Think of dear friends, neighbors, colleagues. Lord, they're destined to this awful place that is called hell. Will you not save them at this time when the gospel mission comes to the town hall? I pray for your strength physically and spiritually. I pray for the Holy Spirit of God to be given to me that as I stand in what is not familiar surroundings to us, in our town hall, that I will have that endowment of power from on high, that there will be liberty, liberty and, and freedom and unction given by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It's not our persuading, though we are to persuade. It is not our reasoning, though we are to reason. And Paul did all that. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to save the souls of men. It is the convincing of God in the heart that we need. True conviction of sin and true conversion to Christ. Lord, may it happen. Make it a special time. Oh, God, come down and visit Balamone. Bring people in from here and around the town to hear your word. Bless the preaching. Bless the, the praying of God, your people. Bless the witnessing, the inviting. Lord, we pray that you will bless the singing and those that come to sing and minister. Lord, use them for your glory. 
just as we come to the end of this prayer, we want to remember Ivor again for Tuesday and just think of him especially as he undergoes surgery. This is a very major moment in his life, but we know that God is in control. We know that you can move the, the surgeon's hand and just make it all work right, and we commit him into your care as he continues to rest in the Lord. Give him grace every moment. Bring him through for your glory. Bless those that mourn tonight as well, the Laverty family especially, having lost their loved one. As we prayed this morning, may we be taught of God to number our own days. We have only one life, and it will soon be past. And we know that it's only what's done for Christ that will last. Help us to do more for Christ, so that there will be more that will last. Hear this, our prayer. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. We take this moment to, to bid you a very warm word of welcome as you've come to church tonight to be with us here in Hebron. It's a beautiful Sunday night. If you were up early, you'd have heard the torrential rain and the storm. It's such a change now this evening. They say in Northern Ireland, you can get the four seasons in one day. And today was a wee bit like that, wasn't it? But you're here tonight, and we bid you welcome. Johnny and Maureen are here. They have celebrated uh, 50 years of marriage in the past week. And uh, that's a good mark to get in anyone's marriage. And we wish them well. They're, they're coming to Hebron tonight to celebrate 50 years married. And that's good. May the Lord bless them. Good to have Mrs. Kearns. We welcomed her back on Thursday night. Good to have your sister back from your journey in the United States. We look forward to hearing a little bit about that visit and those that you met with. And we trust that the Lord will bless God's servant. There's another lady here tonight I met in the car park. Her name is Dorothy Baxter. She's here with a friend. And she wrote to me some time ago when she had heard uh, on the internet that way, way back in my childhood, I had gone to the Gospel Hall in Uri to the Sunday school there where we were taught the Word of God and also to their children's meetings. And that was the, the Ratliff family. Some of you may know the Ratliffs. Dr. Paisley preached at Winston Ratliff's funeral many, many years ago. And so we have a good foundation back then. We welcome Dorothy and her friend. And any other visitors that are here, we welcome you in the Savior's name and those listening in on the internet. There are refreshments tonight. Thank you, ladies for providing the good things to eat and the tea that will be served and the orange juice for those that don't want the tea. Youth Fellowship is having a choir practice immediately after <clears throat> this gospel service. The Hebron Choir, they met this morning and they were singing uh, and having their practice. They're singing at the mission and we just heard a little bit about that, uh, off that going by the church hall this morning. Youth Fellowship, likewise, you need this practice. We've indicated that this week is preparation for the mission as we further prepare the ground for the sowing of the seed of the glorious gospel. And we've set aside Monday and Tuesday as outreach nights. Seven o'clock, probably didn't mention that time, but seven o'clock meeting here at the church and then going wherever the Lord opens up for us. Very, very happy, as we said this morning, just to double up in the town roundabout visit our neighbors, invite them in, especially those that are closest to the town hall. And if you have any one that you want us to visit, we've, we've emphasized this and a few names have come in. Please get them in. You need to get them in or we can't do that visiting. 
Then special nights of prayer, thinking of Wednesday through to Friday, and we want you to join with us as often as you can. The way to prepare for a mission is prayer. The way to prepare for the outpouring of the Spirit is prayer. When Jesus Christ rose from the dead and for 40 days showed himself to the disciples, he had his final meeting. Now all that time, he was telling them to go and preach the gospel. He was reminding them that there was a promise, a promise from the Father, and that was the promise of the Holy Ghost. What did he tell them to do? He didn't tell them to go immediately and preach. He told them to tarry, to tarry in Jerusalem until they would be endued with power from on high. And so they went back to the city, and for 10 days they waited upon God and they prayed. And then you know what happened when the day of Pentecost was fully come, the Spirit of God was poured out, and they were all filled. I'm looking for that day when we'll all be filled. We preached on consecration this morning. We encouraged everyone to consecrate their life to God. I don't know whether you did that or not, because we didn't ask for the show of hands or the standing to the feet or for you to come to the front. I think that would have been a good thing. They did it in the martyrs way back at the Easter Convention. It's got people to stand up. But we didn't want that to happen this morning. We just wanted God to search out your heart and for you to do that personally. I believe God has stirred our souls. I know that some of you the Lord has spoken to. Some of you mentioned it to me on the way out and a few others, uh, they text me this afternoon. And if God has done a work in one person's heart, that will be worth it all. But he's done it in many hearts. And that's encouraging. And even to see the increase at the prayer meeting tonight was a real encouragement. So as the Lord begins to stir our hearts and he begins to do things, uh, we're, we're glad that he's working. So the, these nights are important to pray. Saturday is a little bit different. It's the church barbecue. It's uh, back to Sunday school barbecue. These invitations were given out and there are some tonight for you. If you didn't get one this morning, we want you to come and join us at six o'clock on Saturday night. There'll be something for you to eat. Next large day, the early season of prayer is eight o'clock. Sunday school, now back uh, again after the summer recess, 10.30, Bible class at 10.45, worship service, 12 noon, and then the mission begins. Straight to the town hall, seven o'clock meeting with the prayer meeting before, and Stephen Greer will be here, God willing, to sing on the first evening of the mission. Thank you for your tithes and offerings for the work of God. We are asking you, as you know, to pray for Ivor, to pray for David and Rachel in these last days as they serve the Lord in Uganda, to pray for the Sunday school and the Bible class that have recommenced now for the new term. Pray that God will, will move mightily. Pray for Freddie and his family and their time of sorrow. I'm not going to show all the slides that I showed this morning, but here are the headlines. Pakistan and the terrible flooding that has caused havoc. In the midst of it all, the school continues. We're glad that these children are receiving an education. The ministry at the Carmichael School with the women continues as they come in to sow and to study the Word of God. The work in the Philippines. <clears throat> Pray for Ebenezer Nombre as he continues in the preaching of the Word and also the ministry uh, on the 
The radio that he's involved in every week, we mentioned uh, Jesson and Mooring, two orphan children this morning, age nine and seven, and they are attending Bethel's Sabbath school. They are presently staying with a family. It's actually a Roman Catholic family, but the young man of that home has got saved recently and has joined the church at Bethel. And that's a little bit of good influence for these children. And we want to help them. There's some things that they need just for uh, school life. And we're hoping to help with that. We've mentioned David and Rachel and their family. Please remember them. And one other announcement that I want to make now that this man has made it to his congregation in Corrigari, and that is the Reverend Ray Kurskadden and his wife Rhonda and their family, because God has called them to the land of Uganda. And he'll be coming under the, the mission board. He'll be going out in deputation to our churches to speak about his call, raise his money in the will of God, so will you pray for him and for his children? He was recently there uh, filling in and meeting with the Ugandan people, and he's very excited about going back as a missionary. God has answered prayer. They've been praying for a man to fill the pulpit there, and this man has stepped forward. We're asking you to remember the aid for Ukraine through Pastor Florine. Pastor Florine, as we said this morning, is a personal friend. When I preached at the pastor's conference all those years ago, it was one of my first visits there. It was my second visit there. I went out prior to that with the Reverend Barnes and his wife and uh, the Reverend John Morrow and his wife, but we went back again to speak at a pastor's conference. And I did something then that I've never, ever done in my life uh, before. I preached 28 times in... 12 days. Uh, it was a bit of a marathon, but we thoroughly enjoyed it, and Florine was one of the interpreters along with Pastor Eugene, the late Pastor Eugene Grosa. And this is the Lord's servant. They've been making regular visits to Ukraine and bringing aid to these people, and quite a bit of it. So he was there last week. He's going back on the 13th of September, and we want to help this time with the purchasing of some of this food and aid. These are all the announcements, uh, except to say about the mission. These are the cards. They're at the door. If you haven't got ones for your family and friends, take them. I would like to think that every Christian here would take at least one. It would be good that if you could take five or six with a special prayer in your heart as you go to that family member or friend, Lord, bring them in under the sound of the Word of God, bring them to Christ at this mission. We leave that with you. The invitations are at the door. Let's sing 286. It's not love lifted me. It's would you be free from your burden of sin. There's power in the blood. When we come to verses 3 and 4, the chorus is going to change slightly. But it's on the screen. I'll not need to remind you. You'll see it for yourself. Let's sing with all of our hearts as we sing about the wonderful power of Christ's blood.
That's enough to make me saved. There's another wee bit that can go in the end of that. And that's enough to make me saved. And a little bit more after that as well. I can't remember it all, but I know in one of our churches they always sung on after uh, that last little bit that's extra. We're turning tonight to the Acts of the Apostles in the chapter 24. Acts 24. Please find the place and find the 10th verse. And we'll read from verse 10 through to the end of this chapter. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found in me in the temple disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now after many years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult, who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had aught against me. Or else let the same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried, standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him of liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Priscilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him, 
wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Portius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. Now, I have three texts tonight. One I've read, verse 25 of chapter 24, as he, that is Paul, reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. And then two verses in chapter 26, first of all, verse 24, as he thus spake for himself, Festus, said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. And then verse 28, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. May the Lord bless his word to every heart tonight. And I want to preach on the subject, three Roman rulers who refused redemption. But we'll pray, we'll seek the Lord. Without him we can do nothing. And so we like, as often as we can, just to turn aside before we preach and commit our way to the Lord. Our Father, you've been with us tonight. We have felt the help of God so far. We've rejoiced in the glorious hymns that we've sung together. And not least the one that has spoken about the power of the blood of Christ. There's power, wonder-working power, sin-defeating power, devil-destroying power in the blood of the Lamb. And Lord, we want to know that power tonight. Will you work wonders? Will you move with power now? Will you speak to the sinner in this meeting and those listening in? Will you change lives, transform souls, do a work of grace? Lord, it's thine to do. We are but a weak and feeble instrument in your hand. But Lord, take us up and use us for your glory. Baptize us with power. Help us to preach your word. And may signs follow, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to keep the word of God before you. I want you to keep these three texts before you because we will come to look at individuals tonight. And as I begin, I want to say that the most pitiable of all persons is the one who is convinced that the gospel is true, but refuses to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. The man that knows the truth, the man that understands spiritual things, the man that realizes his need of a Savior, but he turns away from God's speaking voice, is the most miserable and pathetic of all men. And I believe that the three men that we've read about tonight fit this description. We have a man by the name of Felix. Felix was shaken, but not saved. And then we have his friend Festus. He was enlightened, but not emancipated. And then we have Agrippa. He was concerned, but not converted. And they have so much in common, these men. 
They were all men of the world. They were not religiously uh, inclined in the worship of God. They certainly were not Christians. They were men of the world. They were men of position and power. They had a place of prominence in the Roman Empire as governors, rulers. They were also men of wealth. Money was no object to these men. But like everyone else, they were sinners in the sight of God. The one thing that all men everywhere has in common is this. Doesn't matter what the background of an individual might be. Doesn't matter what their upbringing, whether it's godly or ungodly. Doesn't matter what their privileges might be, whether they're taught or untaught in the things of God. Doesn't matter what their education is. Doesn't matter what their status in society might be. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes in children's work, we have sought to illustrate that, how they all come short. They don't match up to the glory of God, which is God's perfect standard. No matter who it is in this world, they they come short, infinitely short. And we might get the children in a meeting, or we might take them outside, uh, for example, to the road, when there's no cars on it, or we'll get the car stopped. And we might say to a little child, I want you to jump across the road, and I want you to jump just with one step or with one jump. So the first little fella, he'll go, and he'll get across maybe, maybe a meter and a half or so. And then we get an older child, a little bit more athletic, and they have a go. They get two meters, two and a half meters perhaps. And then an older child, full of energy, full of vitality, And they take a jump, maybe three meters, but the one thing that they have in common is they can't make a jump to the other side of the road. They all come short. Here is the infinite standard of God, God's perfect holiness. Nobody matches up to that. We all come short of that glory. All have sinned. It's a statement of fact and a declaration of God's Word. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Like other men, they were all in need of God's salvation. Every one of them, whether it was Felix or Festus or Agrippa, they needed to be saved, saved from their sinful condition. Furthermore, they were all spoken to. They all heard the gospel. They were all presented with the truth. Paul was the preacher, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived in this world, the great missionary, the great soul winner, the great church planter who went all around that part of the world from, from Israel right round the Mediterranean, reaching possibly as far as Spain, preaching the gospel. It was this preacher that stood before them and gave them the gospel. So they were instructed. They were told their need. The gospel affected them. It really did. The story of the cross, and that's what Paul always preached always preached the cross, Christ crucified. It affected these men. Sin troubled them too. They felt their sin, I believe. But they rejected salvation. They rejected Christ as their Savior. My friends, they represent multitudes ever since who have been told, who have been taught, who have been shown, who have been brought to see their need of redemption and salvation, but they rejected 
Jesus Christ. And they died in their sin. And sadly, they were lost forever. I believe these men died in their sin and lost forever. I wonder, is that you tonight in this meeting? I wonder, as I have made these opening remarks, these few statements, you can identify with what I've said. You're like these men. You've been taught. You've been instructed. The gospel is something that you are familiar with. Maybe you've even, in your heart, been moved, moved by the story of the cross and the death of our Savior and the wounding there at Calvary. Maybe you've even been troubled about your sin, as some of these men were. All of these men, I believe, they were troubled about their sin. But up until this point in your life, you have rejected Jesus Christ like so many others. And alas, if you were to die this very night or tomorrow or this week, and you die in your sin, you too would be lost forever. And you would go to the same eternity as these three Roman rulers went to. The three Roman rulers who refused redemption. I trust as we look at them briefly that God will speak to your heart. Felix is the first man. We, we think about him. He was shaken, but he was not saved. With exceptional boldness, the great apostle stood before this governor who had the power, by the way, to cut off his head. And yet Paul stands there resolutely, boldly, preaches to him, and preaches a very simple, direct, challenging, solemn message that is recorded for us in this text of chapter 24 and verse 25. Just the opening part of it there. As he reasoned, reasoned with this man. And what did he reason concerning? Righteousness, temperance, judgment to come. It was a three-point sermon. We're not told how Paul developed this message, but that's the summary, that's the headings of what he preached, reasoning with him. This is probably something, how it went. Felix, I want you to know something about righteousness. I want you to know that you have no righteousness of your own. As we said, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. Felix, you have no righteousness wherein you can stand before God and be accepted by God. Felix, you need the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ, who came into this world and by virtue of the great work that he accomplished at the cross of Calvary, he wrought righteousness for his people, all who will come to trust in him. And the moment a person is converted, the moment a person is saved, he's clothed upon by the righteousness of Christ. And Felix, you need that righteousness. Felix, I want to talk to you not only about righteousness, your lack of it and your, and your need of the Savior's righteousness, but I want to talk to you about temperance. That word temperance is to do with self-control. Many of these Roman governors, and certainly Felix, they, they were not men of self-control. They were not men of temperance. We understand from history that, that Felix consumed a lot of alcohol. He was a drunken man. We certainly know that he was an immoral man. 
He has married, and it's not really a, a marriage in the sight of God. He has married this woman called Drusilla, who was a Jewess. She was actually married to somebody else. But he had lured her into a, a form of marriage with himself. We reckon that she was only 20 years of age at that time, and she was actually his third wife. So he was a man that was out of control. He had no self-control. He was not living temperately when it comes to righteous living, moral living in this world. Felix, I want to talk to you about your sin. I want to talk to you about your intemperate life. And Felix, I want to talk to you about judgment, the judgment to come. You might be sitting on the throne now. You might have power now. You might be passing sentence upon others now. But there's coming a day, Felix, when the whole thing will change. and You're going to stand before Almighty God. Indeed, you're going to stand before Christ, who is the judge of all the world, and there's going to be a judgment. And you will be judged according to your sin, and you will be sentenced accordingly. And Felix, you will be cast out into the eternal judgment of a lost sinner's hell. I think that's something of how this sermon must have went. As Paul preached to Felix that day, a simple, direct, challenging, solemn message. Now, we know that this man had already some interest in the things of God. Look at the beginning of verse 22. When Felix heard these things, these things that, that, that Paul had to say to him, having more perfect knowledge of that way. That word perfect is the word that means accurate. Having an accurate knowledge of, of the way. The way. It's in the original. And it's just speaking about the way of, of Christianity, of salvation, the way of Christ, who said, I am the way. And the apostle is saying, you, you have accurate knowledge about the way. And there's certainly, it can be said tonight that, that this man had an interest, and he, he had an interest in Christ. He wanted to know more about the Lord. How do I know that? Because of what we read in verse 24. After certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Called him out of his prison to stand before him. Paul, I want to hear about the faith in Christ. I want you to tell me about the Savior. And Paul had the opportunity again and again and again, many times as we know, from this passage of Scripture to share the message of Christ and salvation with this Roman governor. He was challenged about his need as, as he was reasoned with, reasoned in that three-point sermon <coughs> that, that we mentioned. Now, there was a response. You can't hear a sermon about righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come without having some kind of thoughts without having some kind of reaction in your heart. And there was certainly a reaction with this, man, with this man. Because when he heard these things, the Scripture tells us that he trembled. He trembled. That was his response. But he said, go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I, I will call for thee. I want you to see that here we have a man who was shaken, but not saved. Felix 
trembled. He shook. As he thought about his unrighteous state before a just and a holy God, he trembled. As he pondered his intemperate lifestyle, he trembled. As he considered his unprepared state in the light of the judgment day when he would stand before God, Felix trembled, but alas, he did not get saved. I think of those meetings when God is near. Often that's on a Sunday night in these gospel services, very often at a mission, because that's a special time, a special visitation time. And God is there, very near, near in his word, near in gospel preaching. I, I think of those times when the Lord moves in our midst and there's a trembling, a shaking, there's a quaking. And you recall times when the power of the gospel brought that kind of response and reaction with men. McShane put it this way in his hymn when he said, Then legal fear shook me, I tremble to die. And you've been there. Some believers here tonight, you've been there. You remember those gospel meetings that you sat in prior to your conversion, and you trembled, trembled at the thought of a holy God before whom you will stand one day, trembled at the thought of the awful judgment into which you would be cast without a Savior. You trembled. And there's unconverted people here tonight, and you can identify with this trembling because you have shaken also under the sound of gospel preaching. But still you're not saved. Then I think of Festus. He was enlightened, but not emancipated. <clears throat> Chapter 26, verse 24. Here's his reaction. Here's his thoughts. Having listened to the gospel, Paul, uh, he says this, we're told with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. Festus is the next Roman ruler to cross the path of the apostle two years later. He was the successor of Felix. Meanwhile, to please the Jews, Paul had been confined to prison. Festus had arranged a meeting with Paul. It was a kind of a, a court case when the Jews came from Jerusalem and they, they led false and despicable charges against God's servant. Festus examined them, and having examined all those accusations, he found nothing, nothing worthy of death in the apostle. Paul told this ruler his testimony, as we shall see, for he gave his testimony before Festus and Agrippa on the same occasion. He gave a summary of the gospel message, a summary of the gospel message I believe we have there in verse 22 of chapter 26 and verse 23. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day witnessing both the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. This is the gospel. 
I'm sure Paul developed that. We, we just get the summary when, when we read the history. Christ should suffer. That's the cross. That's Calvary. And that he should rise from the dead, the resurrection of Christ. And the gospel message is primarily based upon the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The crucifixion of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Felix was enlightened, but he was not emancipated. That word emancipate means to liberate. It means to free, to release, and when applied to the sinner in gospel terms, the meaning is obvious, to be released from his sin, to be liberated from his dark ways of transgression, indeed to be set free from that terrible judgment that is to come, to be saved from hell. And what is his reaction? Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning does make thee mad. He seems to get at this stage a little bit irritated, a little bit riled. How often have you been enlightened? How often have you been told? How often have you been warned? How often have you been shown the way of salvation, but you've refused to come to Christ? You have thought perhaps the preacher's mad, that he's crazy, he's out of his mind. You have listened to his persuasions as he's reasoned with you, as he's taught you the gospel, and you've come to the conclusion, it's not for me, not for me. Oh, the man is mad. Who was the mad man? Was it Paul or Festus? Is it the Christian or the non-Christian? The Christian who believes that Jesus of Nazareth was God's incarnate son who lived among men, who died upon the cross to redeem sinners, who rose again the third day to give life and immortality to those who repent and believe, or the non-Christian, whose belief is that Jesus Christ was a common, ordinary man without power, who was crucified but did never rose from the dead, and that the grave will never open and there'll never be a resurrection of one person. Is it the Christian who believes in the hereafter and lives for it, as we often like to quote the phrase, living with eternity's values in view? Or is it the non-Christian who knows of no world but this and lives and dies as if there were no other world to come? Who is the true madman? I don't think that you can draw any conclusion, any other conclusion than Festus. He was a true madman for rejecting this. And the ungodly today who reject so great salvation. Thirdly, we have Agrippa, concerned but not converted. <coughs> Verse 28, all oh, this famous statement of Agrippa to Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Agrippa steps into the scene in chapter 25 and verse 13. He too had a desire to hear for himself this preacher and this message. He was intrigued by what the apostle had to say. 
Paul reminded Agrippa that he was very familiar with the Jewish religion. Chapter 26, if you go back to verse 3, especially because I know thee to be an expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Paul gave his testimony. He told the king that he belonged to the, the strictest sect, the Pharisees, that he was a persecutor of Christ and Christians, imprisoning them, and where possible, sanctioning the death of many saints. He told of how he was suddenly confronted by Christ on the Damascus Road, and how that day he was converted to Christ, and how God called him to be a minister, to preach the gospel. Look at chapter 26 and verse 18. Paul had said to this man that God had called him to to preach to the Gentiles, to proclaim to the Gentiles the gospel. Verse 18 puts it, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Now this king heard the same things that Festus heard, the same gospel, the same testimony. Paul challenges Agrippa about these eternal matters. Look, please, at verse 26 and 27. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. My friends, when we study what happens here in this chapter and what's going on in the life and the heart of Agrippa, We see very clearly that this man was troubled. He was concerned. He was, to put it in the language that is used, almost persuaded to be a Christian. The words of verse 28 have forever been indelibly identified with him and the response he made in verse 28, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost, almost. But with a little bit of persuasion, I would turn to Christ and become a Christian. Paul says in verse 29, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul says, I I wish you were. I wish that you, and see the others that are gathered in this courtroom, I wish that they too were almost and altogether persuaded. Not just almost, but really brought through for Christ. Altogether persuaded to become a Christian. Almost. But not altogether. Concerned 
but not converted. Almost persuaded to be a Christian is like a man who is almost pardoned, but he's hanged. He's like a man who is almost rescued, but he drowns. A man that is almost delivered, but he dies in the fire. A man almost saved, listen, is damned. If you're just almost persuaded to be a Christian, my friend, you're damned forever. Philip Bliss put it this way in his hymn, Almost Persuaded. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to feel. Sad, sad, that bitter wail. Almost, but lost. I am convinced that there are thousands and thousands of people like him in gospel preaching Ulster. And for all I know, some in this meeting tonight, that's where you are, are listening in, almost persuaded. Like Agrippa, you're familiar with the truth. Like Agrippa, you've heard the gospel. Like Agrippa, you, you even believe certain details with, with the head. It's all up here. But you're not converted. You're not right with God. And until this moment in your life, you've turned away from Christ and salvation. Deep down in your heart, you know that the Bible is true, what it says about salvation. Being convinced, but not altogether persuaded, will bring you only gnawing misery and a Christless eternity. The almost persuaded Christian is a condition of soul that is frequently attained. The heart is touched. The mind is enlightened. The will is moved. The spirit trembling on the verge of a decision for Christ. Nothing wanting but the decision. And many reach this position, but it's a dangerous condition. You see, no soul can remain permanently in the position that these words describe. It's impossible to, to remain almost persuaded because either you will move on and you will become fully persuaded or you will drift back and you will become less persuaded. wonder where you fit in tonight, even looking back over your, your lifetime. If there was a moment in your life, some time in your history, some time ago, or maybe that moment is now, almost persuaded, where will you go from this moment? Where did you go if it is in the past? Did you become altogether persuaded and you decided for Christ and became a Christian? Or tonight you have to say, preacher, I'm less persuaded? And if this is the place where you are tonight, almost persuaded, what is tomorrow going to bring next week? Is it going to bring the altogether persuasion in your soul to become a Christian, or are you going to become less persuaded? You cannot remain in that condition of being almost persuaded forever. A person who is almost persuaded is completely lost. 
Are you struggling with eternal matters? Are you troubled? Are you concerned? Is it not true that, that, that you know what you need to do? These three Roman rulers were struggling against the truth. There was a battle in each of their hearts, a battle that was raging. They knew what to do, but, but they refused to do that. So near, almost there, just, just outside the gates of heaven, as it were. One step, that, that's all it, it would take. That's all that was needed, just one step that would bring them into Christ. But they turned away and turned away forever. Will you be numbered among them? Three Roman rulers who refused salvation. Three of them coming so close, coming into contact with one of the greatest preachers in the world, having knowledge, having understanding, having the gospel preached and presented to them, hearing the testimony, the glorious testimony of Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who that day on the road to Damascus got converted. And yet they came to the point so near, but they turned away. Will you be numbered among them? I pray not. I pray that you'll do the wise thing and press in, that you will be altogether persuaded to be a Christian. I'd love to persuade you. I'd love to take time even after this meeting to, to answer any question that you have if I can. Just to have time to talk to you. If you're concerned tonight, don't go away without the Lord, without the Savior. If you have queries in your mind and heart, come and speak to us. We'll try to answer them from God's Word. But don't stay in a state of being almost there and being like these men turning away forever. Come to Christ. Come right away. Come now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your presence and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We know that the gospel is the mighty power of God. It has changed multitudes. Millions and millions of people through the ages have come to know the Lord. Hallelujah for that. Many in this meeting, likewise. But we know that the gospel also can be listened to and Christ presented and men like the men that we've looked at tonight turn away. Don't let that happen here. Lord, may there be a full persuasion of heart that the right thing to do is to become a Christian. And may men and women seek the Lord now and call upon his name and get right with God. We pray this earnestly and sincerely in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close the meeting by singing that hymn, Almost Persuaded, Now to Believe. Almost Persuaded, Christ to Receive. Seems now some soul to say, Go, Spirit, go thy way. Some more convenient day on thee I'll call. The convenient day never comes. Be careful what you do. We'll stand to sing our hymn.
Heavenly Father, this meeting comes to an end. The gospel preaching ceases. The invitation is over. The persuasions and the reasonings are gone for this night. But Lord, it's your word. It's your gospel. It is thine to save. It is thine to bring about that work in the hearts of men that we desire. That they will be all together persuaded to be a Christian. And so we leave the issues of this gospel service with thee. Lord, will you bring sinners to Christ? Will you do it now? We pray that men and women and young people who know not the Lord will wind their way to the cross and get to Christ, the Savior of men. Dismiss us now in your fear and with your love upon us, for Christ's sake. Amen.